0: Sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero.
1: The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a
0: run for survival.
2: You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM.
3: Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, Three each weekly search for truly sustainable living in a world full of greenwash. Tonight on Greening the Apocalypse, we will be speaking with Samuel Alexander. He's a return guest to the show and has previously spoken to us about voluntary simplicity in our day-to-day lives as a true solution to the world's ills. This evening, we'll be talking to him about planned communities, the hows, what and whys might inform you and further inspire you to follow up your dreams of a communal life. As always, co-conspirator, salad hunter, Mary Creek wanderer, and deep level ponderer, Mr. Adam Grubb. <laughs> how are you, man? Good. Well, I'm standing because I couldn't adjust my mic before we went to air. We were I was just talking
0: my... about the benefits <laughs> of standing desks. Yes. And, uh, so you just like you decided like then and there. I like I like how you just. I just got a click in
3: my neck. actually, that was a bit by shit. the horns. And <laughs> you... yeah. I think if it was ergonomically set up, it might have been much better. But,
0: yeah, how are they? I'm I'm pretty good. Awesome. I've been in the world of computers. I'm sort of I'm I'm more comfortable around CSS forms than humans at the moment, but you know, I'll do my best. Oh, cool. Do so are best. you
3: seeing everything right now as ones
0: and zeros? You're yeah. I'm, but then I see through the ones and zeros and see uh. The beautiful brunette, except blah, blah, blah the yes. Matrix references. Beautiful. The sound of inevitability. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
3: In the rotating chair, direct from her South Coast Island paradise, the destroyer of demons and muckraker extraordinaire, Sarah Coles. How are you?
2: I'm okay. Um, Steve Marsh lost his high court appeal. Shit. Yes. Hmm. So, so you've um,
0: been and visited Steve Marsh, he of the uh, anti-GMO...
2: Yeah, he's just WA. an organic farmer trying to get by in a mixed up world and his neighbour planted GM canola which subsequently blew onto his farm and he lost 70% of his organic certification. There was a series of court cases that followed that and uh, he appealed to take it to the High Court but he, he didn't make it. So that's quite sad.
0: Mm. Mm. And that's the end of it. for Like he's just got to pay up now.
2: Yeah, he has to pay. I think eight hundred and three thousand dollars in legal costs.
0: Mm, aye, aye. don't look yeah. sideways at Monsanto anymore, <laughs> Mom and Pop farmers. Yeah, yeah. Sad they're... news. Mm. Well, a lot more we could say off here that involves lots of expletives.
3: As always, the MVP of GTA, the radio machine mechanic. And bicycle Titan, the two-wheeled one, Jed McCartney. How are you, Jed? I'm well, thank you. You've got some bike news. It's a bit... Here.
1: also sad news. <laughs> uh, there's a, uh, um, a chap called Antoine, and excuse the pronunciation, but I think it's Dimitier, who died in a race on the weekend, a Ghent Wavelgen. Uh, this guy's in his second pro race. He's a Belgian man in Belgium. Uh, fell off with four other riders and was unlucky enough to get run over by a motorbike. In uh, one of the uh, photo motos, it's the photo moto, the photo moto. So um, there are something like thirty-five motos going with the race, taking mm. photos. So I think there's a big, big issue there for the UCI to um, to address because there's been quite a few people hit by motos uh, mm. recently. What's uh, the what's the rate? how many uh, competitors in that race? Uh, there's probably maybe a hundred, hundred and twenty. So, so um,
3: sort of a one to three or
1: one to four ratio yeah. of motorbikes.
3: That does seem it, exorbitant. It does, doesn't it? So, mm. um,
1: yeah, but uh, it's spring classic time, so lots of late night viewing as we uh, have the Ronde van Vlanderen, Tour of Flanders and uh, <laughs> I just, all of <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Swedish chef from <laughs> the Muppets. We're so, oh, all all about to happen. Lots of late night television coming up. Fantastic.
3: <laughs> Oh, I'm glad we were able to bring that home with a bit of joy. Uh, each week we discuss what has caught our eye that week and um, a few things. I, I'm, well, I could go either way with this. I won't go with um, niche target books. I'll go with an article from Modern Farmer. I seem to be getting a lot of those articles. Capturing my eye recently. Uh, Carbon Farming, um, Hope for a Hot Planet by Brian Barth. Uh touches on a bit of stuff we've discussed already on the show in the past with holistic uh, management and grazing. And so what was that sound? Anyway... Uh Basically, concern over climate change um, has thrust the concept of carbon farming into the limelight. 25 countries pledged to pursue it during the December climate talks in Paris. Um, there is a rancher named Gabe Brown who raises livestock in an array of crops on 5,000 acres outside Bismarck, North Dakota. Um, but he's been preaching it for decades. And he basically says all soil biology eats carbon and that's how nutrients cycle. So farmers need to think of carbon as their fertiliser because it's what drives a healthy system. And he... Goes through a bunch of different. There's a bunch of different carbon farming techniques that mirror age-old organic growing methods. So, for you know, instead of relying on chemical crutches and pulverising the soil with constant tillage, you enrich it with compost and rotate a diverse array of food and cover crops through the field each season. Um, and there's a heap of stuff on this. They talked about Joel Saladin, but then I was really interested. They made reference to a Michael Pollan article in the Washington Post. I went had a look at that. And what I really liked was that actually the, the discussions... I usually hate looking at the comments sections on social media because people just start shit-canning each other. So really... But this was a really, really good discussion at the bottom of Michael Pollan's interview article. Um, the denialists got involved and people were sort of somewhat um, kind to them but still let them know they were knobs. Um, <laughs> yeah, and there was just a lot of yeah, really good... I have moments where I feel completely awash with grief and <laughs> pessimism, and I have moments where I feel quite invigorated, and this was actually one of those moments of feeling quite invigorated. Um, and I'm not going to go into it too much more detail because I think I've touched on that a lot with um, the different articles I'm reading lately, but carbon farming, hope for a hot planet, which leads to something that you've seen, Colsey.
2: Yeah, mine wasn't an article. I went to a place... Um Recently, where I think they would, it could be said they're practicing carbon farming. It's um, Amber Creek Farm and Sawmill, 165 acres at Fish Creek in South Gippsland. And it's a sawmill combined with a pig farm. Nice. So, of course, it works because they, have, they add the waste from the sawmill to the pig shit. So it's this perfect nitrogen carbon combination. Um, it's really building the soil there.
3: So uh, you, you saw it all? Yes,
2: yeah, so I went and checked it out and they've got this, so they've got about 80 pigs and then they're using a farming method called home pad and petal, have you heard y- of that? Yep,
3: so the, the an aerial shot of that might look like lots of petals coming off a central point?
2: Yeah, so the central point is the home pad which is where the pigs are and it's um, where they put the um, waste from the sawmill. Mm. And the pigs are eating there. And then they have a thing that, an uh, electric fence that comes off of it that's shaped like a petal from a flower. Mm. And they're allowed to graze in that area. Yep. And they, sh- so it's constantly shifting around. And so they had all these, like it was wild. They were, you'd just be standing there and a pig would come out of this giant patch of sunflowers and it would have, you know, a pumpkin in its mouth and <laughs> run past or tomatoes. I hadn't ever seen that kind of farming uh, in action. Yeah. Awesome. And so it made me feel, I felt invigorated. I have the same thing where I go from despair to joy.
3: Awesome.
2: And this was definitely the best farm I've ever visited.
3: Hogs and logs.
2: Yeah, that's what they call it, hogs and logs. (laughs) And so you can look it up as well, www.ambercreekfarm.com.au. I told them that I'd plug it in exchange for some chops.
3: (laughs) Cash for comment. <laughs> yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: yeah. how good were those chops? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so pumped about it. Also, as an aside, they're building all these things on the property from um, upcycled materials, mm. and they've built this gigantic. I think it was a woodshed or tool shed, and all of the windows in it were made from old foam boxes. Oh, cool. Yeah.
3: Like was, a giant TARDIS full yeah. of timber.
2: It was. Uh, it was just. You should go and check it out. I think you would really down like near it down there, Fish Creek. Yeah.
0: Any excuse to go down there is is fine.
2: Have you been there, Adam?
0: No, but I know Dan and Amelia of uh, Amber Creek because they supply the wonderful cypress timber to my business, which we then turn into veggie beds and chook houses. Cash for coming. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, <I'm, laughs>
2: Yeah. When in Fish Creek,
0: cool. South Gibson, and I choose to buy my timber <laughs> exclusively. <laughs> well, I don't know if you can go there, unfortunately, as a, um, if you just want to buy it because they just supply to businesses, but um, they do supply to us. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> also, di- ha- are we digging deeper here or uh, not? I can't uh, tell. I
2: Also, I have something else to say. On the way there, you drive past all these farms and they're all eroding. So you you just see the hillside crumbling into what used to be probably a creek. And it's crap. And then you get to this place and they've planted, I think, over 15,000 trees there. Awesome. And then the trees that they're using to make, I think, to make the veg beds. I think they're dead trees that they're actually...
0: Yeah, they harvest the big cypress trees which you get on the farm, shelter belts, which are all... There's um, some fungal disease or something going around killing them. So they harvest um, these trees. They're a bugger because they're wobbly, big, you know, branches out everywhere. But they salvage as much as they can, and uh, it's beautiful timber. It smells amazing, mm. it's naturally rot resistant, termite resistant, and it's light. So it's a great alternative to treated pine. And that's why we use it in the uh, anywhere where it's going to come into soil that you're going to eat out of. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a great uh, timber to be using.
2: I think that it was the future.
0: Nice. You saw The Future and it was Hogs and Logs.
2: Yeah. Bam. What's yours? <laughs> uh,
0: what caught my, well, ear actually was um, just catching up on some old triple R and, yeah, Jed McCartney. <laughs> I tuned into to JBG Radio Method before I uh, went back and listened to the one before Christmas. I learned all this stuff about our panellists that I hadn't heard before, because he's too humble to say, but fascinating backstory. It's worth going back and listening to, 27th of December, Radio On Demand. Um, so did you have you done it? I think Bushy has, but I didn't know. I haven't heard it. Or at least I'd forgotten that you can play the
1: bagpipes, True. Um, i I did in a former life i haven 't played them for a long time so, yeah, yeah. This and is incidentally
0: when he, when he got to play a track he played and hes jed, jed gets over bush 's riffs a bit but he played ACDC um, because of the bagpipes in it yeah long way to the top um, and, uh, and and i 'm old enough to remember when they were uh, the band <laughs> and did you know jed has an order of Australia What? Oh yeah. fuck, he does too. For what? Yeah. what for? for being or a radio? mechanic in, in, in the army. Or oh, Air Force. in the Air Force. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Working on what was it, F one elevens. From since the age of eighteen he's working was working on these. Yeah. And you were born in the Solomons. Yeah. <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs>
3: Somewhere out there there's a panelist right now going, Oh, he's come over here, he's taking my panelling <laughs> job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was only there for about uh, eighteen months. My dad was a bank manager up there. Thomas Bank. Which bank, yeah. Oh. So um yeah. So is that how you guys were able to
3: afford such luxuries as bagpipes?
1: Uh, no, I, I wasn't. Um, I had to work a, a part-time job packing bags in the supermarket. Mum and Dad said, you want bagpipes, you go and earn them. So, go and pack bags. Yeah, go and, uh, you know, when you used to go to the supermarket and <laughs> the boy... The boy you used to carry your bags out in the paper bags. That was you. Car. That was me. I was the bag boy. Tucker bags puppet master. Yeah. And
0: you loved bags so much you thought, yeah. why not get a musical instrument exactly. based on one? yeah.
2: <laughs> wow. <laughs> Can you bring them in and play the theme song to the show? No. <laughs> that
1: would be pretty ba- awesome. Bagpipes are an instrument that needs to be played well, and I don't. <laughs> mm. Even played well, they have their moment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, great show. Um, yeah, it's good. And and also worth mentioning, Jed's the only person that's never missed an episode of this show. Indeed, yeah. in 52 shows 52. as well. <laughs> shows. Awesome. Uh, we should,
3: uh... I'm glad Sorry we to embarrass the, you. No, no we yeah, brought but... the joy level back up again, didn't we? That's good.
1: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia.
2: You're listening to in the Apocalypse on Triple R. We've got a returning guest this evening, Dr. Samuel Alexander. Dr. Samuel Alexander is the founder of the Simplicity Institute, which is an educational and research group which envisions a simple way of life. He is the editor of the 2009 anthology, Voluntary Simplicity, The Poetic Alternative to Consumer Culture. He's a research fellow with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute and a lecturer with the Office for Environmental Programs at Melbourne Uni. He teaches a Masters of Environment course called Consumerism and the Growth Paradigm Interdisciplinary Perspectives. His most recent books are Simple Living in History, Pioneers of the Deep Future and Entropia, Life Beyond Industrial Civilization. Dr. Samuel Alexander has been at work on a documentary due out very shortly that seeks to show why genuine progress means rejecting consumerism and building new forms of life based on permaculture, simple living, renewable energy and localised economies. We are delighted to have him with us on Greening the Apocalypse this evening to talk about the Wurukan project and on-the-ground experiment where the theories of voluntary simplicity are put to the test. Samuel, thank you for coming on this evening.
4: Good to be with you again.
2: Um, could you tell us a bit about the themes of your book, Entropia? Entropia? Entropia.
4: Entropia, sure. Uh, well, it's I published it in 2013. Uh, it's a fictional description of a... Um, society that emerged after the demise of industrial civilization. I wanted to try to envision in as much detail as I could uh, what I understood to be a sort of a a long-term sustainable way of life. So it ends up describing a a radically low consumption, low energy but sufficient way of life uh, where a lot of local economy um, and a lot of sharing, a lot of community governance, a lot of renewable energy Um, and I was motivated to write it because I think when I talk to people about the crises that we face I get a lot of nodding heads and then people shrug their shoulders and say but what's the alternative and to some extent I think I was asking that same question so I put my mind to the task of trying to crystallise my vague thoughts about what sustainability would actually look like um, and used this sort of fiction, fictional narrative to try to unpack some of those ideas.
2: Yeah.
0: Why? It, it's a bit more exciting, though, isn't it? Like, the road? Like, hey, <laughs> to not... I mean, like, we've got all these, you know, Mad Max-type things. People are getting, um, uh, you know, smashed with hooks and... and uh, Everyone's struggling over resources. Great narrative material. Um, very few people try and write a positive future because you have to talk about meetings and agendas and, I don't know, like all the things that you filled your book with. Um, but well done for filling that space. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a flaming guitar yeah, room for
3: a... Fl- that, would be, yeah. that would get people across the line, that's all I'm saying. Worked in Mad Max. <laughs> yeah.
2: um, and then what was the response to this book?
3: Um...
4: Well, generally uh, very sympathetic readers. Um, as always, there'll be critics. Um, but the main response uh, was on the last page of the book, almost sort of after the final, the fin- you know, the book finished. I had a note saying if anybody wanted to uh, kind of try to practice some of the ideas that were being explored in the book to send me an email. Um, and about two weeks after the book was published, I got an email from a guy who said he had 20 acres of land and a little bit of cash to get things started. And uh, we met up, and um, the rest is history. Wow. Yeah, it was...
2: It's very heartening.
4: It was exciting.
2: If anyone out there is listening wants to give us money, feel free to do so. And then... So what did you
4: do with that? So I went out to the property with, with the guy, Nick, and, and wandered around this beautiful 28-acre property uh, out near Maui, and uh, we sort of talked through the book and the ideas and mm. checked that we were, had a meeting of minds in terms of what we might want to do in practice. Yeah. And uh, we sort of agreed on sort of some of the motivations, the first one being that we both felt very disillusioned with top-down politics. Um, We didn't think the changes necessary were going to have any chance of coming from the top, at least in the culture that we found ourselves in. And that sort of, by logic, puts the imperative on us as individuals and communities and households to drive the change from the grassroots up. So we sort of felt it's not our energies weren't best invested in, say, campaigning for the Greens, even though that's a noble thing to do. We thought that uh, we wanted to try to, as they say, build the new world within the shell of the old by sort of, kind of building things at the grassroots level. So uh, we also mm. felt pretty disillusioned with mainstream environmentalism. There was a lot of talk of turning off the lights and composting and taking shorter showers and again good things to be doing but um, given the extent of the crises that we're facing that isn't going to cut it Mm. so we wanted to explore a deeper green shade of sustainable practice or ecological practice Mm. and this was an opportunity for us to try to do it so uh, that was sort of august 2013 in december we organised our first workshop. We built an earthship out at Moi, uh, and 42 people came. Ran a workshop mm-hmm. um, for those who don't know what an earthship is. Its its main feature is that its um, walls are packed full of um, are, are made from tyres packed full of earth, um, and the uh, windows are north facing, and we've put this uh, cooling tube out the back, which goes four meters back, and then twelve meters down to the right, underneath meters of earth. And basically, those features create a passive solar house in the sense that it shouldn't need uh, heating in the winter or cooling in the summer. And it's amazing; like this actually works. I've lain down many nights in front of that cooling tube, and it is and non-electric air conditioner it's Mm -hmm. nice when these things actually work
2: how did you did you do it with martin freeney or how did you know how to build an earthship
4: um i some of my writing gets posted on the permaculture research institute and um, one of the articles a fellow in earthships australia contacted me and it just sort of fell into place he you know it was about two weeks after that guy um talked to me about the property out at Maui and then that led to this connection with Earthships Australia, so it was quite fortuitous. Yeah.
2: And so where is it at now? Is it all completely built?
4: Uh, the Earthships completely built over the last few... Uh, so it's been sort of two years in the in the making. Uh, the next thing we built was a cob cabin in, 2000 and, in February 2014. Cob's just a mixture of clay and sand and water and straw. You jump on it for half an hour or so and then you've made this cob and then you just basically mush it into a wall shaped shape and there you go we had about 25 people come to that workshop and the thing that struck me um at that workshop was so it cost five thousand dollars to make this beautiful cob cabin and 25 of us had we stayed on the property for a year we could have worked for a week had a week off worked for a week, had a week off and we could have all had one of these beautiful houses for $5,000. Mm. It just makes you think about how insane the property market is today. Like mm. it costs six or $700,000 to buy a crappy old villa in the and suburbs. Rip it down and build and, something and it something you out of mud. Into, mm. It locks you into decades and decades of pretty yeah. unfulfilling labour and here we were stomping on mud having the times of our life uh, working hard in the day, socialising at night and building this beautiful natural house and mm for, you know, essentially escaping the, the, the death grip of the mortgage.
3: Mm. I have a question that's going to lead to another question. But um, when you talk about, you know, 42 people for a workshop, 25 people for a workshop, uh, I guess there'd be a lot of altruism and a lot of idealism coming to those and some of it would need to be completely uh, lit up and encouraged and some of it would need to be tempered slightly. What's the... How do you... Um, manage the various relationships between different types of personalities on site is it pretty easy going or it's the people who have turned up have
4: been the most incredible free-spirited creative interesting folks they're Mm -hmm. there to learn they're kind they're fun so so far we haven't had uh, at the workshops no, no problems really you know there's different personalities groups end up sitting in different parts of the property if they want to but yep. uh not not huge social problems uh, at the workshops at all um yeah okay but cool. you have
0: it's you now i'm not sure if people are living there at the moment but you, you ran a year-long experiment of communal living is that correct yeah
4: so in august or september 2014 i got approached by a, a documentary maker called jordan osmond of happen films and he sort of said he had heard about the project, read about it online and said he wanted to document its evolution that gave me the idea that why don't we invite people to the property and live there for a year explore these ideas of radical simplicity and low energy, low consumption ways of living and we put a call out um, online and we had about 50 applicants and we picked 10 and for 2015 those 10 people lived on the property exploring this alternative way of life and that's uh, had its social challenges, like any yep. in- intentional community does. Mm. Um, I, as part of the documentary, I interviewed Bill Metcalf, Dr. Bill Metcalf, in uh, Queensland, and he's a an internationally recognised um, uh, scholar of intentional communities. He's, he's the man to, to talk to about this sort of stuff, and he says some wonderful things, including, um, you know, if you want to be an organic gardener, mm. you assume that you have to learn how to. Garden organically, yeah. And yet, too many of us assume that we're just skilled in the art of community living, and it just ain't so. Yeah. And it's really difficult, and it's um, it takes a huge amount of training. And we live in a culture that simply doesn't provide it. And so, mm. you, it's just too easy to escape to your little suburban spot um, and avoid conflict. Whereas the art of resolving
3: conflict is incredibly complicated and um, requires. Learning and training, indeed. That leads me to the question that I was leading to before. Um, we, based on those lessons learned, um, and the relationships between people, conflict resolutions, can you see uh, that they could be overlaid on a bigger scale? I'm not necessarily talking about statewide, but you know, in a, tr- a street or a neighbourhood, can that become a retrofitted, planned community? Um, if you've got a street full of people, who are very different. You know, some have been there five years, some have been there thirty, some are quite young with all these different ambitions and some are quite old, ready to slow down. Do you think with those lessons learned at Warakan that people who are willing to give it a shot can potentially overlay that conflict resolution and relationship building to retrofit their street and their neighbourhood? Sure, I do. Um,
4: I think there's no easy path to it. I think no. it requires uh, experimentation. It requires open-mindedness, humility and sort of training. You know, the, the people who... Turned out at Warakan. some of them had been trained in non-violent communication. Some of them had been tra- you know, they lived in eco-villages and intentional yeah. communities before, and still there was this conflict. So I don't right. think the, the the aim should never be to avoid conflict because yeah. that's an impossible. You know, the the, the, the aim yeah. is to try to deal with conflict when it arises as wisely as possible. What
2: yeah. What were some of the what was the conflict about?
4: Uh anything, and that's the interesting thing. The people who came to Arakan were, I guess, they shared a similar worldview. Otherwise, they wouldn't have applied to come out there. So they they heard that the experiment was about exploring you know, deep green, radical simplicity, and permaculture, and low energy, and um, alternative technologies, and that sort of thing. And yet, despite having a almost identical worldview, not. Identical. There were still obviously always differences, but even then, there is. you know, somebody wants to play the guitar later. Somebody. I was wants thinking to to it was going to be Jim. <laughs> <there's a meat, laughs> but it could be a meat eater or somebody a non-meat eater. There is no right or wrong answers to these questions, yeah. and yet, and and you know, somebody's not wrong for wanting to play the guitar later or earlier or wanting sleep or you know,
2: yeah.
4: And yet, there is this conflict. We're very good at um, if, getting into conflict with each other.
2: If you're. Um, I feel like a moody introvert who cares about the planet. (laughs) Just putting it out there. How would you... Because I feel like if I went to an intentional community, it would be an unintentional community. Like, I feel like I would struggle with things. So can you be sort of like a Steppenwolf type loner on the fringe <laughs> of an intentional community and join it when you want to but people leave you alone the rest of the time because that is what I want <laughs> like can you have that option where or, you're
4: or you maybe get, an entire community of Steppenwolves yeah that would oh, be that would excellent be interesting. I'd go there
2: yeah I'm going to build it
4: oh look I think every community is different and um, this you know even out at Warakan, there is an attempt to create spaces for people to be when they don't want to be in community, because that's yeah. that, that delicate line to draw between the public and the private, or the communal and the, the private, you know yeah. nobody wants to be in community all the time and, no,
2: sir. You know, of, yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so you need space, you know, there's heaps huge amounts to be gained from living in community, but I think it would be an unusual person to want it all the time, and you need those spaces to escape to and read a book, or meditate or sleep or whatever. Yeah. Indeed. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR.
0: You're on Greening the Apocalypse on triple R In the studio we have, we are continuing our conversation with Dr. Samuel Alexander, who amongst many other books wrote... The fictionalized utopian post uh, industrial novel uh, Entropia. And at the end of that, he asked for money or resources for anyone that wanted to set up an intentional community or demonstration site. And, and he got an offer in Maui. And we've been talking about Wurukan, which is a project where they've been doing lots of natural building and uh, living together um, as if what living as if. The apocalypse has already come <laughs> sounds a bit In like training it. that's yeah. a real dig at You're right <laughs> <laughs> um so we, we did mention you mentioned that there were uh s- s- um you've built natural buildings you mentioned a couple of them i think there's more there uh, you also said that y- y- the social side of things was a challenge um what was the what was the narrative arc, if you like, of it in reality? In terms of people getting together, all excited, there were some challenges. Did it did it resolve? Did you learn things as part of the year long living experiment, or did it just end up in tears and frustration?
4: Yeah, no, it, uh, there was a narrative arc. I guess there was a huge amount of enthusiasm at the beginning, mm. um, and like the whole experiment was somewhat artificial in the sense that most mm. eco villages people know each other they yeah. come together they have lots of times to plan whereas this was you know an internet invitation 10 people turning up who didn't know each other to do this. so that kind of created an, a whole new type of challenge mm. um, but there was also that huge enthusiasm at the beginning um, and then there was uh, some early months of activity and huge amounts to talk through and that's where sort of some of the you know meeting after meeting and discussion after discussion sort of led to some of the social tension, social mm-hmm. conflict, which itself was a learning process, and they all became um, richer community members through that I think mm-hmm. um, and I've spoken to them all obviously and and re- in reflection they re- see that they've become wiser and better and more mature community members you know they see that when you know you're in a meeting with someone and somebody says say something blunt or or apparently rude your first instinct may be to bite back but the, mm. the wise um, community member pauses and
0: says perhaps I feel like you're attacking me personally right now <laughs> yeah, <me too. laughs> because That's no, civil, discourse, <laughs> civil discourse civil <laughs> discourse
2: yeah. so you should read the art of war before you go to an intentional <laughs> community what
4: yeah, strategy thinking. <laughs> um, but yeah, one of the interesting things about the social challenges was how it, um, like, it affects the mm. the physical work as well. Like mm. when the community vibe is good, hard work is fun and nourishing. Mm. When the community vibe isn't so good, it's a chore, <laughs> and it's yes. best, you know, like, in terms of productivity, it, there's no question. yet. Yeah.
2: can yeah. you tell from looking at a cob house when people weren't getting on? <laughs> 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 the unevenness
4: of the wall. <laughs> <laughs> they were built on workshops prior to the experiment. So oh, good. <laughs> all good. All good. It's very round.
3: Yeah. I was just, We're actually thinking, it's, we're talking about the physical aspect of the work then. Um, in, I imagine, a post-industrial world, so I've got lots of hand tools at home that I use occasionally, but I don't need to currently use these things like um, to split off logs and all that sort of stuff because I've still got drills and things that I can recharge and plug in and stuff. Did you guys go down the complete... Path of hand tools and and no electricity, or did you use power saws? And so did you speed the process up a bit because you currently can?
4: Yeah, good question. And it was something that you know uh, it was the subject of kind of quite you know philosophical debate. You yeah. know, we want to we ask those questions. You know, yep. to what extent do we want to just use the, the the hand tools, or to what extent can we be more pragmatic and get things? Because you know the, we. It's a good reminder of how amazing fossil fuels are, and how Mm. hard it is to get off them. When you say, you know, we were talking about scything at the Lost Trades Fair just recently. Like, Mm. if you mow a lawn with a tractor, it can be done in an hour. Mm. Or if you had ten people scything, it might take a week. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Um, So, and it's an interesting question about the the two paths: one one of sustainability, one of resilience. Mm. The sustainability path may call on us to practice more radical methods, but the question of resilience, like we need to build some resilience into our systems and cultures quickly mm. and perhaps pragmatically we may want to use some of those yeah. industrial technologies in order to build that quickly. So yeah. mm. there's, again, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here, but it's a it's a fascinating
3: question to, to get your heads um, around. Yeah. I mean, I often think like I've got a lot of firewood at home, like a few winters worth of firewood because I was able to dock it down quickly with fossil fuels, as opposed to if I had all of those trunks and old beams, and stuff sitting there waiting for a boat, or I'd be very warm, but the rest of the family would be very cold. So, yeah, good point.
0: Now, one of the... I guess leading on from that, one of the things that we can do in a... uh, At the moment, which wouldn't necessarily be available from... a Long term sustainability perspective is that we're awash in excess resources at the moment and salvageable stuff that goes to the tip. And uh, I think one of some of the folks that were living at Warrakhan have built a tiny house for how much did you say?
4: Well, we've built a few tiny houses. The first one we built was in December 2014, and that one cost two and a half thousand dollars. It's 10 square meters and a beautiful. Beautiful little cottage house, mm-hmm. um, and I spent sort of three months salvaging materials, tip, sh- uh, tip shops, tips um, skips on the side of the road, friends demolishing parts of their house. Like when you start looking for it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. You and so I like with the process of collecting the materials can be quite laborious, but you can get it, do it cheap if you go looking for it. So the first one we built was cost two and a half thousand dollars. The second one, oh, so in May that year, 2015, we retrofitted the shed. There's an old farm shed out there, Mm -hmm. which uh, was about, the bit that we retrofitted was six meters by nine meters and we insulated it, um, clad it with, anything from tent to <clears throat> floorboards to old fence palings and it creates this beautiful patchwork aesthetic so at the same time as it being cheap it's also <coughs> incredibly beautiful and then later on that year uh two of the residents out at Warikun built themselves a tiny little house they had been in a in a tent just testing their threshold for a while and in the Maui winter yeah. it got a little bit too much so they Got active and started collecting their own materials. And their tiny house, which is about two meters, two and a half meters by two and a half meters, with a loft bed, so it's it's small but it's mm. sufficient for them. And that cost four hundred and twenty dollars, three hundred of which was petrol going to the tip shops and the mm. demolition <laughs> yard.
3: So, wow. awesome,
4: um, incredible.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. Like essentially
3: free. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I, 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 not quite two dollars a day for one year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, We've got a bunch of questions here. We're starting to sort of run it out a little bit. It's a really good question put forward here in our list. What is the difference when we talk about voluntary simplicity? What is the difference between voluntary simplicity and poverty? Uh, If we define. Yeah, that's a question that gets put to me often enough. Um,
4: So the term voluntary indicates the answer is that uh, it's chosen um, rather than having it imposed upon us. Um,
0: But more than that, can you choose it if it's been imposed?
4: Oh, we'll come back to that one. <laughs> um, but the, the main difference being, uh, I use the term sufficiency a lot. Um, yep. Poverty, you have insufficient means to live a full and dignified mm. human life, which nobody wants, so there's no glorification of poverty going on in the simplicity, no. voluntary simplicity literature. It's about finding that Line between underconsumption and overconsumption. Mm. And the interesting thing is that I think we need less than we might often think. Yeah. You know, when you manage to escape the cultural norms that we find ourselves in in the mm. West, in particular, um, and start exploring these alternative practices of consumption. Um, The harder you try and the longer you practice it the more you realize how little is actually needed and that the you know to use the cliche the good things in life really are free yeah or cheap
3: (laughs) or both yeah it's often about you know straightening it straightening out that bent nail and um wire brushing the rust off the hammer so to speak i mean it's you talked about before about when you start to look for these materials to build with um that's pretty much what I've known most of my life because we didn't have the money to play with as kids. Like, just wasn't there. And even as an adult, I've chosen to continue that because I think you get, I, I feel personally, I get more creative outcomes. You know, my kid's cubby house is like, no other kid's cubby house because it took 18 months of scrounging and slowly assembling the thing and, and they love it. And it's even got a tank water, what, tank water on it. Um,
2: <laughs> Are they going to go off grid?
3: They're (laughs) off-grid. They're off. Yeah, they're off. (laughs) Uh, It's wonderful, as always, talking with you, Simon Alexander. Three, triple, ah.
4: So over the last 18 months... uh I've been working on a documentary called A Simpler Way, Crisis as Opportunity. We sent the rough cutoff for re-editing two days ago, so maybe in two or three weeks we're going to have a, a pretty polished doco, and it's going to be launched uh, in Melbourne late May, early June. I can't have a date yet, but watch out for it.
0: Great. I think more than one past Greening the Apocalypse guest is featured in that documentary.
4: Yeah, interviewed Ted Trainer, Nicole Foss, David Holmgren, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Metcalf, Graham Turner...
0: Many All future ones. Movie.
4: Yeah.
3: Mm. Indeedy. Um, if people wanted to follow uh, the Simplicity Collective, uh, you got a website and they can sign up to an email. Got a few websites simplicitycollective.com, simplicityinstitute.org.
4: And if you want to find out more about the Warrakan experiment, which we've been talking about today, that's org. W U R R U K A N. Warak, by the way, is the indigenous term for earth and story. Khan is the Mayan word for seed. So. We invented the word to signify our attempt to
3: seed a new Earth story. Awesome. Thanks, Samuel Alexander, for being our guest this evening. My pleasure. Good to be back with you. Indeedy. Awesome. Uh, Thanks, Jed, for hitting the buttons in the correct sequence. Thumbs up. Order of Australia and a bagpipe. (laughs) Oh, I (laughs) am. Bang. Oh, I am. Colsey, thanks for coming up.
2: This is my favourite show so far.
3: Awesome. Awesome. You mean across the grid or within...
2: Within hours, superb. Obviously, across the grid, it's super <laughs> <laughs>
0: Magic. Hey, Adam. Uh, who are we talking to next week? Oh, it's going to be a good one. Um, Such a Jadas, who is the author of? Oh, it's got a few names now. Uh, what's his latest book? The Banquet of Consequences. Banquet of Consequences is the Australian name. He's one of the guys that predicted the global economic crisis. <laughs>